We want to get into the word of the Lord tonight. And I've got a lot of ground to try to cover. And I can tell you right now, because last week I came to the pulpit knowing that I wouldn't get it all done in one week. And uh, I didn't even get as far as I'd hoped. And then added more information last night. And um, I'm not going to get it done again tonight. But we'll take as long as we need to to cover this. This is so important. I believe if there is any church in these seven that we really need to spend time dealing with, it is the Church of Philadelphia. Because I believe that's right where we're at right now. And I believe that the things that we can learn about that church are beneficial and important to us. Praise God. Amen, amen, amen. Now, I've been trying to get away from making announcements before I preach, but I do have one big announcement to make. Sunday we were welcoming folks new to the Truth Church and we have yet another one who is going to be added to our number soon moving here from another state and um, she's coming from Colorado because as of tonight, Brother Jared Hilton is officially engaged. So I asked him if I could announce it to the church, and he took a while in responding, so I wrote back and said, silence gives consent. So it didn't really matter if he said yes or not. I was going to do it anyhow. But he said he wanted you to know and that's where he's at. Uh, now he's out there. And uh, he doesn't have to be on one of the mountains in Colorado Springs. In fact, they're probably far below his feet. I imagine he's on cloud nine right now. But we're excited about Sister Andriana coming and being a part of the Truth Church. And... Um, We'll give you all the details when we have all the details to give. But I thought you'd want to know. And we're excited about that. Praise God. Amen. Now, some of you other single guys, get on the ball and go find somebody from Colorado Springs. Your pastor said so. Brother Burgess won't let me live it down that they've gotten two of ours. And he didn't want to let go of one of his. So I'm going to see if we can't get four or five more of his. And then I'm not going to let him live it down. So now you girls forget Colorado Springs. It doesn't exist. It's not on the map. 
So don't even think about Colorado Springs if you're a female. We're not losing any more to Brother Burgess. We're going to only gain from him from this time forward, even forevermore. Yea and amen. <laughs> Praise God. All right. So having said all of that, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Revelation. And we are going to read a few verses of Scripture here. Revelation chapter 1. You know what? Let's, let's instead of doing that, and I'm springing this on who's hiding in the sound booth tonight. Sister Jasmine, are you back there? Sister Jasmine's back there in the sound booth, and I'm springing this on her. But uh, instead of the text that I gave you, let's, we're going to try to save a little time and see how far we can get. Would you, would you instead turn to Revelation chapter 3, and we'll just read this letter to the Church of Philadelphia as our text. Revelation chapter 3, and we'll start with verse number 7. Revelation 3 beginning with verse 7, and we'll go down through verse 13. We'll just read this entire letter. Make that our text tonight. Revelation 3, verse 7, and to the angel, or that is the messenger, the messenger of the church, that's the pastor of the church, in Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Praise God. So, as I said, we are continuing on in our series tonight, the lessons from the seven churches, and this is part two of our study of the church of Philadelphia. Praise God. Would you put your Bibles down, lift your voices, lift your hands. Let's ask the Lord to talk to us tonight, everybody. Amen. Everybody, let's lift our voices to the Lord right now. Jesus, we love you. Praise God. Praise God. Come on, let's give God some praise. Let's give God some praise. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. 
Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. And rather than go through a lengthy review uh, of the entire series, I want to just review a few things about Philadelphia. Uh, first of all, we pointed out to you that the name Philadelphia is actually a compound Greek word, and it means brotherly love. It means brotherly love. Now, this city, when it was first founded, was probably intended to be the center for the Greco-Roman civilization. It may well have been founded for a social purpose because of its location, because of its geography. Uh, it was in the center. Uh, it was a crossroads. Now, you know, last week I talked about some of the similarities between Philadelphia and where we are. One thing I failed to mention was that Olathe, believe it or not, this very city uh, is, has been, was, I should say, a crossroads in the development of this nation. Some of you who are not from Olathe do not know this, but the Oregon and Santa Fe trails, uh, two of the most popular trails going west from the relatively newly founded United States. Those two trails crossed right here in Olathe, not far from this church. In fact, the old stage coach stop still stands today. You can go and tour it. Uh, it was a crossroads for these two trails, and this was a crossroads for America. We are in the heart of America, just as Philadelphia was in the heart of this civilization. Uh, the city of Philadelphia was known as the doorway to the east. Uh, it was the way uh, that led to the trade route to the Orient. Uh, it was the center of the trade route. It was uh, it, crossing through Philadelphia was an imperial postal route. Uh, there weren't that many. Not everybody had uh, mail being delivered in those days. But, but the kings of various countries uh, would send by post their correspondence. And Philadelphia was a center. It was a hub. It was a crossroads for the imperial postal route. It was also a hub for a military route. And so there were a lot of things that converged upon the city of Philadelphia. What this meant was that there were people uh, out of practically every nation in the then known world that were going to be spending some time in that city. Amen. We'll talk more about that. This is why I wanted to do this review. We're going to talk more about that and the significance of that in just a few moments, the Lord willing. But there would be many, many people from various backgrounds, various nationalities that would pass through Philadelphia. And it was in this setting that a very, very healthy church was being raised up for the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, I believe that this church of Philadelphia uh, received uh, the greatest 
promise of any church I know of. I don't know of a greater promise that could be given to a church than for the Lord to say to uh, a church what he said to Philadelphia. And we're going to talk about that in just a few moments. And we already started last week talking a little bit about why he made this great promise to them. I pointed out to you it's not an accident, it's not a coincidence that God would extend this phenomenal promise to the church that was built on brotherly love. And any church that is going to be blessed by God is going to have to be a church that is filled with brotherly love. At some point, the people of God have got to lay aside their differences. They've got to lay aside their grievances. They've got to quit finding fault. They've got to quit making attacks. And we've got to learn to love one another and show that love one to another. Amen. Praise God. Now, we started into verse 7, the introduction to the letter in last week's lesson, and we didn't get very far. I had pointed out to you that in each of these letters, the way that Jesus identified himself was always significant. For instance, he wrote to one church that he had the feet of brass, brass signifying judgment, and he was letting them know, I'm about to trample you in judgment if you don't repent. And so when he would identify himself, he used a different way to do that. And each time it was significant, it was important, and it was tied into the contents of the letter he was about to dictate to the Apostle John. And so in this case, we pointed out that he opened this. Let's go ahead and read Revelation 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Now, I pointed out that the first thing he said about himself, these things saith he that is holy. So we talked about that. We closed our last lesson by addressing the fact that first of all, he is the holy one. That is his preeminent characteristic. Above everything else is his holiness. It supersedes even his love. I pointed that out. I explained it last week. I don't have time to go back through it. I would encourage you, if you did not hear that lesson, go back and listen to last week's lesson. And you'll hear how I explained from the scripture that his holiness even supersedes his love. He is a God of love. But his holiness supersedes that love. And his love is filtered through that holiness. All right. Now, he not only said that he, uh, he not only identified himself as he that is holy, but if you're looking, he also identified himself as he that is true. He that is true. Amen. And again, this is significant. Praise God. The word true means real. It means genuine. It is opposite of what is fictitious, counterfeit, imaginary, simulated, or pretended. Now listen, there have been plenty of fakes, but there's room for only one genuine. There is only one true, genuine God. 
The Muslims worship a God, but he's not the same God. I've heard people say, well, whether you call him Allah or you call him Jehovah, it's the same God. I beg to differ. Because Allah wants you to kill others for him. But Jehovah said, I'll come and die for you. That's not the same God. Hallelujah. I submit to you that there are many who call themselves Christians that worship a different God. For they worship a triune God. The God they worship includes three separate distinct persons. That's not the God of heaven. Is anybody going to help me tonight? Do I need to get rid of this chair so I can get you moving tonight too? Well, hallelujah. Praise God. I said when you worship three persons and call that God, that's not the God of heaven. He is not three persons. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The literal Hebrew says it this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's one. He's not three. It's not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is God. He's Alpha and Omega. He's beginning and end. He's first and last. Amen. He is the Father in creation. He is the Son in redemption. He is the Holy Ghost in regeneration. Amen. Amen, amen. We need to get an understanding of the genuine God, the one that is true, the one who really is. This question came up in our M&M class a few weeks ago, and I think that it bears dealing with at least momentarily here. John 8, verse 24, read. I say, therefore, unto thee, that ye shall die in your sins. You shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Now, get your Bibles. This is Bible study time. Get your Bibles. I want you to go to John 8, 24 and look at it in your Bible. Now, if you're using a modern translation, it may not be that way. In fact, if you're using a modern printing of the King James, it may not be that way. But most of the older printings of the King James, you will notice something when you look at this verse. I said, therefore, unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he. I want you to look at the word he. Do you see how that's printed in your Bible? Does anybody notice that it's printed differently? It's in italics. That fact that the word is in italics was done that way so that the King James translators could let the readers know that word does not appear in the original manuscripts. We put it there because we think that will help you understand what he's saying. Anytime you're reading your King James Bible and you see a word that's in italics or a phrase that's in italics, that's their way of letting you know. They want you to know this did not appear in the original. We put it there. 
We think that helps you to understand, but it's not in the original. So the original does not say, for if you believe not that I am he. The original says, if you believe not that I am. You shall die in your sins. Now, the interesting thing about this is what he said exactly. And I don't want to spend too much time here. I'll get sidetracked. You know how I love to teach about the Godhead. I'll get sidetracked here. But, but listen to me. You need to understand. If, if you speak Spanish. Now, Sister Anna, keep me, keep me straight here now. Don't let, me, don't let me mess up my Spanish lesson too bad. But, but if we want to take the infinitive comer, which is to eat, comer. Now, if I want to say I eat, all I have to do is change it to como. Am I right? And if I just use that, if I just change the ending of that word, como, that means I eat. Just by changing the end of the word. Everybody with me? But if I want to emphasize that I am the one who's eating and not someone else, I can actually come back and say, yo, como. Yo means I. By putting that yo in front of it, it, it emphasizes. It's not needed for translation. Brother Albert, am I right? Okay, just making sure. I got, I got too many Spanish speakers here, and I'm a little nervous. I'm often in um, unfamiliar territory. It's been too long for me. But, but if I want to emphasize it, I can add that, yo. It's not needed to understand the sentence. But I could put it there for emphasis. The same thing is true in the Greek language. Jesus could have just said, I me. That means I am. But he didn't. He added the pronoun, ego, which means I. So he said, ego, I, me. Now that obviously doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but he was emphasizing that I am. He is, he is stressing to these Jews, I emphatically am. In other words, I am the I am. When you go back to the Old Testament, now the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but, but uh, before the days of Christ, someone took it and translated it into Greek because Greek became the, the language of the world, much like English has been for the last uh, century or so probably. Um, you know, that I've, I've, I pointed out to our M&M class, that's been one of the great blessings about working in Southern Africa. Most of it was, was uh, settled by Great Britain. And so most of the people there actually speak English. Now, they have their tribal tongue as well, but most of them know English. And so I don't have to go in and learn a bunch of different languages to minister to these people. I can speak English and almost everybody there understands me. All right? So, so the universal language in the days of Jesus was Greek. And so someone took the Hebrew Old Testament and translated it into Greek. 
Now, I'm telling you this because when you go back to Deuteronomy and you find Moses standing before the burning bush and God says to Moses, go down and tell the people that you're going to deliver them. Moses said, who shall I say has sent me? The voice speaks to him and said, you tell him, I am has sent you. The Greek translation of the voice speaking out of that bush was not I me. It was ego I me. The very words that Jesus spoke to these Jews when he says to them in John 8 and 24, except you believe that ego I me. You're going to die in your sins. If you don't believe I'm the same one that talked to Moses out of the burning bush. If you don't believe I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you don't believe I am the God that created the universe. If you don't believe I'm the only God that exists. You're going to die in your sins. He's not a trinity. He's one. And only one. Praise God. Amen. He wasn't saying except you believe that I am three. Or that I'm part of three. I'm one among three. That's not at all what he's saying. I emphatically am. I am the I am. The whole concept of the Trinity wasn't even discussed, wasn't even thought of until the third century. 200 years after the apostles. It wasn't clearly defined until the fourth century. 300 years after the apostles. Now you're going to tell me that those men who walked with him, who knew him face to face, never understood the, 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 the Godhead and it took men 300 years to figure out that God was not one, he was three, and that's truth? No, my friend, that's not truth. That's a bunch of religious garbage that was based, well, that was kind of strong. I should have, should have put a filter on that. Uh, that's a bunch of religious tradition. Garbage is more accurate. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, it's not biblical. It's not even historical. If you're looking back to the early church. The whole concept of God being three doesn't even make sense. Anybody understands one is one and three is three. You don't have to have a degree in rocket science to figure that out. You don't even have to have a diploma from kindergarten to figure that out. When that little child says, how old are you? Oh, you're three. They understand one is one and three is three. If only the religious philosophers could figure that out. But they can't. Their eyes and minds are blinded to the truth. Oh, how I love 1 Timothy 3.16. Read it. 
And without controversy. Oh, listen to this. Listen to this. Without controversy. You understand that term without controversy is one word in the Greek, and it means that there is no debate. It means there is only one opinion held by everybody who is truly a Christian. Everybody who is truly a Christian has the same opinion on this. So if you find somebody has got a different opinion, uh, Paul kind of gave them a different title than Christian. <laughs> because every Christian will have this opinion. And this is what he said, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Tell us about it. God was manifest God, in the flesh. Not one part of God, not one third of God, not one of the three persons in the triune God, but God was manifest or made known in the flesh. Justified. He was justified in the spirit. God was. God was seen of angels. God was preached unto the Gentiles. God was believed on in the world. And God was received up into glory. Let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me tell you who Jesus is. He's the rock of all ages. Well, praise God. This understanding is critical to our faith. Jesus said, if you don't believe this, you'll die in your sins. Now, let me tell you, one of the reasons why you'll die in your sins if you don't believe this is because if you don't believe this, the chances are very strong you're not going to be baptized in his name. And the only way your sins can be remitted is through baptism in his name. If you're never baptized in the name of Jesus, you cannot have your sins remitted. So you'll die in your sins if you're not baptized in Jesus' name. All right, all right, all right. So he identifies himself as he that is holy and he that is true. Now, of course, there is another side to this when he says he that is true. He's also saying anything I'm about to tell you, you can count on it. You can take it to the bank because I don't lie. In him there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The Bible says it is impossible for him to lie. The reason why it's impossible for God to lie. Now think of it, not, not that God doesn't want to lie. Or that God chooses not to lie. But this is one of the very few things the Bible says God cannot do. It's not even possible. Now think about that. If God wanted to lie, he couldn't. You want to know why? Because the moment he speaks something, it becomes the truth. You know, if, if I were to say to you right now that it is, uh, it's high noon in Olathe, Kansas, You'd say the man, either his watch is not working, he's bad mixed up, or he's a liar. Because we all know it's not noon in Olathe, Kansas. But can I tell you, if God were to speak from heaven and say it's noon in Olathe, Kansas right now, I don't know if the sun would go forward or backward. 
but the moment God said it, it would become the truth. That's why he could look at Abraham and say, your name is the father of many nations. How many children does he have? None. But when God says it, it becomes the truth. 90 years old, no children, doesn't matter. When God says it, it becomes the truth. Now that's important because the things God's about to say to Philadelphia, there's no reason to question. There's no reason to doubt. There's no reason to worry because the moment God speaks it, it may not be the case beforehand. But once God says it, it becomes the truth. You may not see it come to pass at that moment, but I'm going to tell you, the wheels start turning. Everything starts changing. As soon as God says it, something starts happening. It took a few years after God said to Abram, your name is Abraham, father of many nations. It took a few years for him to even have Isaac, but that's still not many nations. And Isaac, to have Jacob and Esau, and that's still not many nations. But along comes Jacob and his 12 sons, and each of them having lots of sons. And before long, you got many nations here. Hallelujah. It took a while. But it all started with God speaking the truth. And I'm going to tell you, when God speaks it, you can write it down. You may not see it today. You may not see it tomorrow. But don't doubt it. Somebody at the Truth Church, listen to what I'm telling you right now. I don't care what promise God made 25 years ago. It's still true. The wheels are still turning. The process is still working. It doesn't matter how much time has passed. Because this is he that is true. If God said it, it's right. Hallelujah. I know folks say, well, someone prophesied to me and it didn't happen. Well, this is what I can tell you. Either it's going to take more time or they were a false prophet. That's the only two choices they have. That's why I'm very careful to never come out and say, God said, unless I know God said. A lot of times I'll say, church, I feel like this is what the Lord is saying. But if I'm 100% certain, then I'm going to tell you, thus saith the Lord. Well, hallelujah. And if it is thus saith the Lord, it's going to happen. Anybody believe that? All right, so let's go back to Revelation 3, 7. So it's, let, let's, let's read again. Uh, Under the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Write these things, he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. All right, now, this is crucial for what he's about to say in the next verse, but we need to take some time and deal with this. So first of all, he's the holy one. Secondly, he's the true one. But third, he's the one 
who holds the key of David. That's an interesting title. And then he goes on to explain, because I have this key of David, I open and no man shut can shut. I shut and no man can open because I have the key. So let's talk about this key of David. Let's go over to Isaiah 22 and verse 22. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Now this verse, when you go back to it, you start reading in Isaiah 22. It sounds like it's a prophecy of the Messiah. It's actually not. Hello? It's actually not. This verse is referring to a blessing that would be put upon Eliakim. Eliakim was a faithful servant to King Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah and Isaiah were close friends. Hezekiah was the king. Isaiah was the prophet. But they were close friends. You'll remember that Isaiah was given the task of coming and telling Hezekiah he was going to die. And then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and sought God. And God said to Isaiah, go back and tell him I'm giving him 15 more years. Isaiah and Hezekiah had a very close relationship. And what Isaiah is saying now is involving one of the faithful servants to King Hezekiah. This servant's name was Eliakim. Eliakim was placed in a position over Hezekiah's household. Now stay with me. This position involved the decision whether to admit someone into the royal palace or not. Eliakim got to decide. When you went to see the king, Eliakim made the choice. He was given the key. Now the house of David, you understand, he was given the key of the house of David. The house of David spoke of the kingship that existed over Judah. And so when, when it was said of Eliakim that he would have the key of the house of David, he's saying that Eliakim gets this great privilege that nobody's going to enter into the king's house unless Eliakim uses the key and lets them in. He has sole discretion as to who comes in and who goes out. When Eliakim decides it's time to close the doors, he closes the doors. He locks them and nobody else gets a key. If he decides it's time to open the doors, he opens the doors because he's proven that he is faithful to the king. Well, hallelujah. And so he makes the decision. You see, the key of the house of David represented control and authority. Are you with me? And so Jesus, whom the scriptures call the offspring of David, in fact, he's the root and the offspring of David. Amen. He can open and close the doors to the royal palace because he has the key to heaven. 
That's why if he said, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He has the keys. Well, hallelujah. He's the one that's got control. He's the one that's got the authority. So whatever standard he sets. Now listen, Paul did not. Paul did not contradict what Jesus said. But just in case somebody thinks he did, you still can't go to Paul and use the Roman road to get into heaven. Because Paul didn't have the key that Jesus had. Jesus was the one with sole discretion as to who's going to enter in and who's not going to enter in. And he said, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Jesus is the one who determines who's getting into that royal palace and who's not getting in. Hallelujah. And so, and so Jesus determined this is the way to get in. In fact, here's what he said, John chapter 14 and verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. You're not going to go except the way he said you're going. When I talked about on Sunday how the, uh, the wind blows where it listeth and you hear the sound of it, he said everybody that's born of the Spirit, you're going to hear the sound when they're born of the Spirit. Jesus is the one who said that. And so there can be no exception. There's no getting around that. You don't go to heaven if you haven't spoken in tongues. Jesus said that's what's required. And Jesus holds the key. So you want to know how to get into heaven? Now the apostle Peter... Jesus trusted him and said to him in the book of Matthew chapter 16, I give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so on the day of Pentecost, when the hungry crowd cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? How did Peter use the keys? Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Then Peter said, then unto, Peter them, said unto them, repent, repent and be baptized, and be baptized every, one every one of you in the name, in the name, of, name of Jesus Christ, Christ for, the for the remission of sins. Of sins. And you shall, shall receive the gift of, the, gift of the, Holy of the Holy Ghost. You know what he was doing? He was just using the key that belonged to Jesus. Jesus loaned the key to him. Woo. Hallelujah. I'm going to tell you, Jesus is the one who decides who gets in. And that's why he's the one that's going to be standing there either saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And in so doing, he opens the door. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Or, depart from me. I never knew you. And he casts them out. I'm telling you, he's got the keys. He has the keys. And he decides. Praise God.
Now, let's, 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 let's move on. When we talk about all of this, in fact, um, I'm going to skip just a little bit here, Brother Goff. Go down to verse 8. I want to read verse 8 before I get to the next scripture on my list. Uh, I want to to talk about this for just a moment because, again, remember in verse 7 what he said was that he said, uh, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth, all right? So that's how he closes verse 7. I've got the key, and when I shut the door, nobody's getting in. Or if I open the door, nobody's going to stop it. So he goes straight from that. In fact, if you look, there is not a period at the end of verse 7. So the sentence continues. And what what does he say in verse 8? I know thy works. I know thy works. Behold, Behold, I have set before thee thee an open door. And no man and can no shut it. And no man can shut it. Thou hast now, now we'll little. come back. We're going to talk more about verse 8 in just a moment. But I, I, want, to, I want to hit on this for, for, for a few minutes here. I want you to understand. Amen. Jesus has the key to open the door, to close the door. When he opens it, nobody can shut it. When he shuts it, nobody can open it. Right. Amen. He holds the key. He's got the key to heaven. He also has the key to revival. Now, I'm not going to take time to read all these verses. I don't have time to do it. But if you're taking notes, uh, I'll, I'll read these off. If you're not, you can take notes when you listen to it later on. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 9. 2 Corinthians 2, 12. Colossians 4, 3. These are just a, four, a few examples, uh, amen, of God opening a door to souls and a harvest. But people, when God opens the door, People have a responsibility to walk through the door. And that was the case in Philadelphia. Jesus let them know, first of all, I'm true. So whatever I say is going to happen. Second, I want you to understand, I've opened a door to you. I've set before you an open door. Now it's up to you to walk through it. The Apostle Paul had a lot of experience in the opening and shutting of doors when it came to what God was doing in his life. On his second missionary journey, Paul tried to go to Asia, but God said no. God shut the door. Again, I want to be careful of my time because I want to get through some of this. Uh, I really want to go in detail on this open door if I can before I get through tonight. I don't know that I'll make it, but, 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 but understand again, I just, I just, there are times when I just feel like I need to say something and it may not apply to anybody here, but maybe somebody online somewhere will hear this and needs to know, needs to hear it. But I hear, I hear even preachers sometimes say, well, you know, God doesn't send people to a specific place. Uh, Every place needs the gospel. So you just go wherever the gospel's needed. Well, that's interesting to me because Paul wanted to go to Asia and the Holy Ghost said no. The Holy Ghost shut the door. So then Paul wanted to go to Bithynia and God shut the door. Then he went to Troas and while he was there, the Lord gave him a vision and said, look, you're trying all these other doors. 
Let me tell you where the door's open. And he saw a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over unto us and help us. The door was shut. Everywhere Paul wanted to go, the door was shut at that moment. But God opened a door to him. Sent him to Macedonia, Philippi. Amen. The door was opened. After that, Paul writes about having another door open to him. Let's read 1 Corinthians 16, 9. For a great door and effectual is open unto me. And there are many adversaries. Now, in this, in this uh, he is talking about the city of Ephesus. And, and he's saying, there is a great door that God has opened for me right here in Ephesus. It is a great door, and it's an effectual door. So I'm going to stay right here as long as this door is open. I'm going to labor in this vineyard. This is obviously where God wants me. Until God shuts this door and opens another one, I'm not moving an inch. The door is open in Ephesus, so I'm staying in Ephesus. So don't give me this story of I can just go anywhere I want to and preach anywhere I want to, and, and that's the will of God. I don't believe that. You're liable to go somewhere and find a bunch of closed doors. You better ask God, where's the door open for me? Now, one other thing I want you to notice before we get off of this verse Paul said, a great door and effectual is open unto me. What's the next word? And. And. He didn't say but. That's the way most of us would say it. A great door and effectual is open unto me, but there are many adversaries. That's not the way Paul said it. He said, there's a great door and effectual, and not only do I have a great door and effectual, but I also have many adversaries. In other words, the two go hand in hand. Let me say this to you, church, and I think that all of you understand this, but when God opens a door to an individual or to a church, don't think that means the devil's not going to fight. Now, the devil can't shut the door, but he can do his best to keep you from going through it. Well, that didn't get the response I'd hoped for. Maybe I need to try again. Maybe I need to back up and hit that one more time. Amen. I said, the devil can't shut the door. God's already made that clear. If God opens the door, the devil can't shut it. But what he can do is he can get you discouraged or he can get you divided or he can get your eyes off the door. He can do things to try to stop you from going through the door that that God opened for you. And what good is an open door if you can't get through it? So just understand, with the great and wonderful promise that God made to us and reaffirmed to us just a few days ago, the great promise that God made that he had set before this church an open door, don't think that that open door doesn't come with Not just adversaries, but many adversaries. You really want to get through that door? Anybody here really want to walk through that open door of revival? Anybody here really want to get through that door of seeing souls saved? Anybody here really want to get through that door of seeing miracles happen? Well, let me just tell you, on your way through the door, you might as well expect for the devil to throw everything at you, including the kitchen sink. 
he's going to give you everything he's got to try to stop you from walking through that door you just can't grow discouraged and you can't get weary you got to keep pressing on you got to fight your way through you got to keep on keeping on until you finally know I've walked through that door devil you're not stopping me See, I think that's what happens sometimes. A promise like this comes to a church. And folks then think, okay, it's time to just sit back and wait for it to happen. Doesn't work that way. Anytime there is a great door and effectual that's open, there is a sidecar attached to that bike. And in that sidecar, are unwelcome passengers. Well, hallelujah. I know I'm mixing metaphors. We're going through open doors and we're putting sidecars on bikes. I'm mixing metaphors, but anyhow, you get the idea. Some of you had not seen sidecars. You may be too young to see a sidecar, but they used to put those things on the side of a motorcycle and, and they attach it to the frame of the motorcycle and it sat out here beside the one that's driving the motorcycle and it was called a sidecar so anyhow mixing metaphors but you get the idea you, you, you start trying to get through that open door and I'm telling you your attitude he'll affect your health he'll affect your finances he'll affect your family he'll do whatever he's got to do he can't close the door and he knows that. He doesn't have the key to close the door. All he can do is try to stop you from walking through it. But I pray tonight that I've got a group of people under the sound of my voice that are saying, devil, I don't care what you try to do. If I've got to crawl on all fours, I'm going through that door. It's open and I'm going through. I'm going through. I don't care what the rest of the world decides to do. I made up my mind. I ain't going to turn around. I'm walking with my Jesus and I'm going through. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. So, it's interesting. God previously closed many doors to Asia, but then later he opened it. God knew when the timing was best. He knew the hearts of men. Paul had to just learn to be patient and wait until God opened the right door. And then step through that door. And I'm telling you, this is our season, church. I said, this is our season. This is our time. This is when God is opening the door for this church. It's here. It's before us. Yes, there are many adversaries, but that doesn't matter. There is a God that's bigger than all the adversaries put together. He's bigger than any problem. 
Oh, hallelujah. Now, I'm going to try to move on just a little bit more here. I've got a few moments because I really want to get more into this open door. I would say before we really look closely at verse 8, it is important that you understand that this church contains only commendations, no corrections. The letter to this church, I should say. The last letter... Now, you know, you remember the other letters that had corrections, the Lord would start with a commendation, he'd say something good about them, and then he'd come back and he'd sandwich something that he needed to, to see corrected in their lives, then he'd come back and compliment them again if, if possible, but, but he'd always start with something kind, but in the last one that we dealt with, he started off with correction. He was obviously very upset with them. And we're not going to get ahead of ourselves, but I will tell you that in the next letter, there's no commendation at all. The whole letter is filled with correction. The Lord couldn't find anything good about Laodicea. Nothing. In fact, as I'll point out to you when we get to that, to that letter, he was standing on the outside. They'd forced him out of the church. Can you imagine? The church had forced Jesus out. We'll prove that. We'll prove that when we get there. But with Philadelphia, there's nothing that the Lord says to them they need to fix. Let's, let's look at this. Again, it has to be. It has to be. In great part because this was a church of brotherly love. And love covers a multitude of sins. That's what the Bible says. You find a group of people that will love one another and love sinners when they walk through the door. And I'm telling you, you have found the recipe for revival. You found the recipe for revival. Because it's not just going to be sinners that are going to be drawn to this place. But there are going to be saints that are hurting, wounded, devastated in the throes of what they see as destruction. But they're going to walk through the doors and feel loved and feel welcomed. And God's going to renew the passion and the fire. In, oh, I feel like I'm... I'm not just talking. This is not just me. Listen to me, Truth Church. God has looked down upon this assembly. God has looked upon this assembly and he's found here what he's been looking for. He's found a group of people that know how to love. And because of that, you hear me. They're going to come from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. God's going to draw them. He's going to restore them. He's going to heal them. He's going to put them back into his service. But he's looking for a church of brotherly love. Now you hear me. You hear me. That's going to be the devil's main line of attack. 
is to get you upset at somebody else. Now listen to me. And one of the devil's lies is, well, they're mad at me. Well, they're destroying me. Well, they're attacking me. Well, I want to tell you something. If that's the attitude you've got, there's something wrong in your spirit too. Because you need to learn how to give people the benefit of the doubt. You need to learn to love them. What, how do you think Jesus felt? Every one of us are responsible for the, for the lashes on his back. And yet he never stopped loving us. He never walked away from us. Don't let the devil start putting things in your mind to, to put you against another, to pit you against another. I'm telling you, we got to maintain this spirit of love. We got to maintain this spirit of unity, whatever it takes. We got to maintain this around here because that's the key that's going to keep this door open. Now, read for me again verse 8. I know what time it is. I'll try to close with this, this, this one thought here, but read for me verse 8. I know thy works. Behold, I have set now, before thee an all, open door. First of all, I know your works. He said this to the other churches. And most of the time when he said it, it was not a good thing. Now, sometimes it was a mixed review. Sometimes when he said, I know thy works, Behold. he would name, hang on, he would name good works, and he would name bad works. Sometimes when he said it, it was just bad works. In this case, he's reminding the church because it's easy for us sometimes to think that everything we're doing is going unnoticed. It's easy for us to think because maybe, maybe people aren't really saying anything about uh, what, what we've done and the time we've spent and the efforts we've put in. And it's easy. The devil starts telling us, you're not appreciated. Can I get a witness? Will anybody be honest enough to admit sometimes those thoughts come into our mind? You're not appreciated. Look at what you did and nobody said thanks. What the Lord, the one who is holy and who is true, is saying to Philadelphia is, I know. I've seen it. I appreciate it. In fact, I appreciate it so much. Let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. Are you with me? The Lord is saying, I know your works, and it's because of your works that I know have been going on that what? Behold, I have set, I have before, set thee before thee an open, door. an open door. Yes, brotherly love was a part of it. That was part of their works. But he's also going to enumerate some other things that were part of their works. And I'm telling you, he is explaining to them right now, it's because of these works that you thought nobody else even notices. You thought nobody else even pays attention to. I don't have time to get into this. We'll have to save this for next, next time around. But, but, but just notice that they had a little strength. Elder Mays dealt with this. And, and, and I will say this, that, that from all I can tell, historians, commentators, they all believe that this phrase is in reference to the fact that at the time of this writing, Philadelphia was just a small congregation. They were not a mega church. They weren't a big group. They were just a, a small group of people. And so you can imagine, when all the Sunday school awards went out, Philadelphia never got one. When the pastor of Philadelphia would go to the conference, 
and people start bragging about, well, we're running 300. We're running 500. Oh, we got 2,000. How many are you running now? And the pastor of Philadelphia said, how many? Um, They just had a little strength. They weren't getting recognized. They weren't being handed plaques and awards. Nobody was bragging on their growth. Except God. And God said, don't think you're overlooked. Man may not see it. But I do. And furthermore, all those mega churches and all those guys bragging about their numbers and bragging about their growth and how they've raised up a church of of, of 100 overnight, God says, they're not getting the promise I'm giving you. I'm setting before you, not them. Oh, hallelujah. I'm going to set before you an open door. And nobody is going to be able to shut it. Oh, hallelujah. He'd already established the fact that he had the key. Now, he didn't, he didn't go into detail as to what all of this open door involved. And this is, this is what I want to try to deal with in just a few moments. Give me just a few minutes. And, and, I'm gonna, and then I'll move on uh, to some of their other works in our next lesson. But I want to finish this part. The Lord didn't really deal with everything that was a part of this open door. But I can tell you, maybe, 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 it was the fact that every nation and culture was right at their doorstep. Because they were a crossroads, remember. Remember all of the things that passed through their city. The fact that every nation and culture was right at their doorstep, if they could win one person who was traveling through, it would have the potential of reaching an entire culture. Let me tell you how this works. The year was 2013. I got an invitation from one pastor in the nation of Zimbabwe to come to the city of Harare. I went and taught on baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. They accepted the truth. We baptized over 50 in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, they were all from Harare. But they started contacting me and said, we got friends elsewhere. You got to come back. In October of that year, we went back. A whole group of us went back. This time, we rented a room to accommodate 300. There was standing room only and not much of it. They were lined up around the perimeter of the wall and standing outside the door begging to get in. We had seats for 300. I don't know how many were actually present. But this much I do know. Represented in that conference was not just people from Harare. There were people there from all eight provinces in the nation of Zimbabwe. You understand they have provinces much like Canada. Instead of states, they have provinces. 
and there are eight provinces in the nation of Zimbabwe. All eight provinces were represented. Furthermore, there were people from, do you remember how many countries? I, I, I want to say at least eight. I, it was eight or 13. I don't remember now how many, but we'll say at least eight to be safe. Eight different countries that were represented outside of Zimbabwe. So when I reached them, do you know what happened? A to Z missions was born because they started going home to their countries and saying, you got to come back. You got to come over here. You're going to have to come to Botswana. You're going to have to come to Zambia. You got to come to South Africa. You need to come to Mozambique. You need to come to Malawi. Well, hallelujah. I'm telling you, that's the way it works. And here we are. Here we are in the heart of America. Here we are in the crossroads of the United States. People from all kinds of nations around here. We don't know what's going to happen before this thing is all over with. But I'm going to tell you this. It may be that we reach someone, amen, from some communist country that goes back home that's never allowed to leave, but they take with them the seed of the truth. I can't get in there. I can't go there. But they do. You talk about an open door. We got an open door in Africa. I've still got countries I hadn't been to that have been begging me to come. An open door. An open door in Africa. And God has opened the door in Olathe. Listen to me. The church started with the whole world in mind. Before Jesus ever ascended, you know what he said? Read Mark 16, 15. And he said unto them, go ye go into ye all into, the world. Into all. All the world. The world. And, and preach, the, preach gospel the gospel to every to creature. Every creature. Jesus said, I don't want this stopping right here. I don't want this stopping in Jerusalem. I don't want this stopping in Israel. I want this to go to every country. I want it to be spread all around the world. Oh, hallelujah. And so you know what happened? The day of Pentecost comes, right? 120 receive the Holy Ghost. All 120 of them from right there, Jerusalem, surrounding area, all 120. But that same day, how many were added? 3,000 were added. Now, let me tell you something about those 3,000. Why do you think God chose the day of Pentecost? Why do you think God set things up the way he did? Why did he choose that particular time and that particular place? Why did he choose Jerusalem? I mean, you know, we could say the fulfillment of Old Testament typology is why he chose Pentecost, but why Jerusalem? You want to know why? Let me tell you why. Acts chapter 2, verse 5. And they're dwelling at Jerusalem. They were dwelling at Jerusalem. Jews. Jews. 
Devout, Devout men, men out of every out of nation, every under, nation heaven. under heaven. You see, Pentecost was one of those feasts where every Jew had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. Other feasts, they could stay at home and do it, but not Pentecost. It didn't matter where they lived. Pentecost, they had to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. That's why God chose Jerusalem. God waited until all 3,000 were gathered around the temple there. God waited until there were people from every nation under heaven and then he poured his spirit out so it wouldn't stop in Jerusalem I'm telling you whatever country they were from they went back home that day yes there were 3,000 but it wasn't 3,000 that lived in Jerusalem it was 3,000 out of every nation under heaven And then when it all wraps up, and I'm, I'm coming to a close, when it all wraps up, listen to what the Bible says about the church. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, uh-huh. for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every now listen, kindred. listen, hast redeemed us to God by the blood out, out of, of every kindred, every kindred and, tongue, and tongue and people and people and, and nation. That's the church. Not one city, not one state, not one nation, but the church is people out of every kindred, every tongue, every people, every nation. Listen to me, church. I don't know what all is involved in the open door God set before us, but I do believe, Brother Nelson, somehow it's not going to stay in the city of Olathe. It's not going to stay in Johnson County. It's not going to stay in Kansas. It's not going to stay in the heart of America. Somehow I believe God is putting things together, and it's going to spread from here. It's the desire of God. It's the desire of God for people from every culture to be saved. Church, we can't afford to let prejudice or preconceived ideas block our view of the open door. Did you hear what I said? We cannot let prejudice or preconceived ideas. Well, they're homeless. Well, they're, they're poor. Well, they're drug addicts. She's a prostitute. And these preconceived ideas that we don't want them as a part of the church, they'll block the view of the open door. We got to get rid of that. And I don't think we've got any of it now. We just need to make sure it never finds its way through the doors. I don't care who they are. Well, listen to me. Listen to me. You need to be careful getting so wrapped up in politics. Sometimes you get to talk in politics and some sinner standing by may see things a little different than you see them. And you might run that sinner right back out the door. Was it worth that? I'm going to tell you, let's leave politics outside. Let's focus on Jesus. He's the king of all kings. I said, he's the king of all kings. He's the Lord over all lords. 
I don't care. I don't care what their political persuasion. I don't care what their affiliation. I don't care what their lifestyle. Well, I'm telling you tonight, I don't care what their race. I don't care what their color. I don't want our preconceived ideas or our prejudice to ever block our view of the door God has opened. God, give us more. God, give us more. Folks from every tribe, people of every color, I tell you, I want us to, I want us to, to have to have little earpieces so somebody can translate. And I want several different languages going on at the same time. Well, I'm just talking. About, I, I know I'm dreaming, but you just let me dream on, all right? Joseph's dreams were mighty big for a boy that was hated by everybody in his family except his daddy. His dreams were mighty big, but you know what? God brought every one of them to pass. So you just let me dream on, honey. You let me dream on. I'm dreaming of a place far bigger than this. I'm dreaming of a place that's got plug-ins for them to put their headphones. I'm dreaming of a place where we've got interpreters. Amen. Speaking every language under heaven. I'm dreaming of a place where people sitting on our pews are every color, every shade. I'm dreaming of a place where people are of all different statuses in life. I believe that's a part of the open door that God has granted to us. Let's stand tonight. Hallelujah. Come on, let's love the Lord, everybody. Let's love the Lord.